Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear stories about a traffic stop that goes sideways on a road trip in Mississippi, the unexpected healing grace of a destructive hailstorm, a quadriplegic who does the work required to make a full recovery, and a bear tramping through a campground at night, making things scary for our storyteller. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on June 12, 2019 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, What Are the Chances? Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Mariah Kelly, who shares her tale of how her traveling companion and she ended up in jail on drug charges after a traffic stop goes sideways on a road trip in Mississippi. She calls her story, Two Pounds of Undeclared Luggage. Okay, so when I was 18, I was taking a road trip across country to 18 states and with a guy that I had met about three weeks before, and um, those always go well. And so (laughs) I'm driving a tiny Ford Aspire 1997. Uh, It's packed to the brim, and we're about an hour past the Mississippi border, and we pull into a gas station because we're riding on E, like nobody's business and we get pulled over by an unmarked car the sirens go on and we turn off our car five feet away from the gas pump and the guy comes up to the window and he says you know you weren't really doing anything wrong I just pulled you over because you did a wide turn I just want to make sure that there was nothing wrong so we said no everything's okay thank you and he sees Carl shaking Carl's the guy and, and he goes, well, you seem kind of nervous. Can I ask you to step out of the car so I can check for weapons? Carl says, yeah. And I was like, you just consented to my car being searched. So we get out of the car, and faster than I knew possible, there was four other giant pickup trucks who came up, and, and these giant rangers got out wearing T-shirts and nothing official about them and started tearing my car apart. And I, I get pretty pissed because it took me a long time to pack that car. And, um, and, and so I'm telling him, this is unnecessary. I don't appreciate that. And then even one guy pulls my one bag aside and he goes, you'd be pretty pissed if I messed with this. It's packed full of clothes. I was like, yeah, he doesn't touch it. Um, and, then, and then, you know, out of nowhere, one of them finds this little thing and, it, and it's in a piece of aluminum foil. And, and he unwraps it and he gets it out of somewhere I don't even know where and I don't know what it is and I look confused so everybody kind of looks to Carl and I go, Carl, do you want to explain? And so he's like, oh yeah, it's mine but it's just a piece of candy. So I decide at this point to take the guy up on his former offer and uh, he ends up being the DEA and he's like, tell me where it is and I know there's pot in this car and, and I'll let you off and it won't be a big deal. We'll stop tearing your car apart. So I'm like, well, okay, fine. It's under the front seat. I don't know why you didn't look there, um, <laughs> but it's there. And, and so he finds it and he makes a call and a real sheriff shows up with a real car and a real uniform and real handcuffs and puts us in the back of that car and didn't read us our Miranda rights and goes zipping off to the jail. Now, at this point, I'm pissed. My car's been torn apart. Carl has lied to me about something in my car. Um, I don't know what it is. 
and I have handcuffs on, it's steaming hot, the guy won't open the windows and my seatbelt's not on, and I know my rights have been violated at this point. So we get to the jail and he explains that we'll get out as soon as um, the head of the DEA comes and fills out the paperwork and, and no problem, we'll be on our way. Well, a night passes and another night passes and the third day I finally get a phone call and, and I call my brother, my sister, my other brother, my other sister and finally uh, the guy's like, you know, you're only supposed to have one phone call. And I go, I was supposed to get my phone call the first day, and don't you know I'm not supposed to be in here? I don't belong here. I'm crying, and he gets kind of nervous, and is like, okay. And uh, I call my dad, and my dad picks up, thankfully, and he rushes off and gets me out of jail that night. Now, I had been in the jail cell with a murderer and a meth addict, and then just a meth addict, and... Uh, what happens when you get out of jail, apparently in Mississippi, is you have to leave with someone or you have to leave with your car. Well, I didn't have either of those things. But what are the chances this meth addict girl gets out the same night I do? And so, <laughs> so I go, I'm with her. <laughs> and uh, this guy picks her up, whose levels of drunk I've never seen, and we get into his old beaten down Volvo and we take off and she drives, luckily, to his old beaten down double, double wide trailer in the middle of nowhere. And, and we go in and, you know, I'm kind of taking a breath. I'm out of jail. Carl's still in there. I'm not sure what's going on with him. I know he's in solitary confinement because I didn't have enough room. But so I sit down in this raunchy ass couch that's just has stains. I'm not sure what on it. And I realize that I'm in another situation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only have the clothes I came in, so I'm wearing shorts, you know, it's really hot, sticky Mississippi, and the guy offers me a 64-ounce bottle of Jägermeister, two pills, and starts commenting on my legs, and I say, oh, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. And so I go, and I go into the next room, and in the next room is nothing but a plasticked-off, taped-off room within the room and there's tables in the room, and there's instruments on tables, and it smells kind of chemically, and you know, I'd never seen Breaking Bad. I didn't know <laughs> what meth was. I didn't know what the little candy was in my car. I was a good honor roll student, and, and so I go into the bathroom, I kind of stand there and come up with a plan, and go back out and say, oh, I gotta make a phone call. I go outside, and I call Carl's brother, and how unshocked he was may have been a testament to Carl at the time. But, uh, you know, I tell him, look, this is what happened. We're in jail. Carl's in solitary confinement. I'm out. I'm at this girl's house. I'm really uncomfortable. I have no money. Uh, I haven't eaten since I've gotten in. And I feel like they're not going to listen to me in there and I need help. And my phone battery's about to die. And so... So he says, okay, let me call you back. He calls me back about two minutes later, and he says, I have a friend coming from Louisiana. He'll be there in six hours. Can you stay where you are? I said, no, I can't stay where I am. So he says, okay, get out of there as soon as you can and turn off your phone. I'm going to connect you with Josh as the guy uh, from Louisiana. And he says, get to a place that has two signs that cross and tell him where you are and stay there. And so I said, okay, and I connected with Josh, and he knew the plan, and I turned my phone off. 
went back in and waited for the guy to pass out, which he did. And then I, I hightailed it out there, and the girl came with me. And uh, she was like, yeah, yeah, he's sketchy. I was like, no shit. <laughs> um, so, so then we're walking down this dirt road, you know, mosquitoes are biting us, and then all of a sudden we hear revving in the background, and she perks up, and she kind of like looks at me, and I look at her, and she's like, he's coming for us. And I was like, what the, what is, and so sure enough, I see in the distance a car coming and I'm like, screw this. I jump in a ditch and it's muddy and there's mosquitoes all over me and it sucks and she jumps in the ditch with me. And this guy, same guy, different car, beautiful Mustang goes roaring down the road with a Bud Light can out the window screaming at the top of his lungs. And he goes by, he goes by again, and I get up and I start running. And she starts running with me. We get to her house, I wait for her to pass out, and I sneak out of there. <laughs> so, so then I get, to, I walk for about an hour or two, I get to a, a, two signs that cross and I stay there. And, and sure enough, about an hour later, a guy pulls up with a truck and he rolls down the window and he looks like he's showered and his truck smells good and I hop in without even asking his name. <laughs> and he's like, are you Mariah? I was like, yeah, are you Josh? Cool. Um, he takes me to McDonald's and we, it's the only thing that's open and we get some food and we make a plan to get Carl out of jail. And so we go, I get my car put back together and in my car I find, after a little while, I'm making phone calls, you know, I'm doing a good job and then I find a little thing that's wrapped differently, but I open it up and there's a little piece of candy inside and I don't know why I did it, but I popped it in my mouth. <laughs> and, and then I carried about my day. And so I made over 80 phone calls that day. I, <laughs> talking to attorneys and the jail and I, I fucking got Carl out of jail. And I was, I was there and, um, Josh is like, we have to go swimming. You know, you just need to go swimming. I was like, yeah, okay. So we go to the swimming hole and it's beautiful and it's magical and the trees are stretched and, the, and I can hear music. I don't know if, if it's actually, but the water is so clear and it's beautiful and the colors are so bright and I just felt so good. And, and so he takes off. He's, he's gone. He, he had just left a newborn baby. He like dropped everything, didn't even know me and came and did this, and he's amazing, and hopefully he hears the story and contacts me so I can thank him properly. I, like, I don't even know if his name's actually Josh. Like, I've never seen him again. And, and so he goes, and I go to the jail, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I go exactly to the nearest gas station, and I fill up my car, because that's what the whole point was, right? And so then I go to the jail cell, I get Carl out of jail, and then, the guy, well, before I do that, the guy is like there and, and he's like, oh, I haven't done the paperwork. And I just, I mean, this is the DEA. He hasn't done his goddamn job. And I'm there and I've had the hell of a time. I feel great. And I bitch him out so hard that he starts saying, oh, excuse me, ma'am. And he looks scared. And he goes and fills out the paperwork. Carl gets in the car and, and we we're on our way. And Carl's like, do you want me to drive? I was like, I'm fucking driving. And, and, <laughs> and we start driving away, and I left Mississippi 15 pounds lighter with a misdemeanor for under an ounce of pot. And what I didn't realize was that they never checked in the food crate, which had about two pounds underneath the chocolate chip cookies. 
Thanks, Mariah. Mariah Kelly recently graduated from the University of Montana in education and history and then moved to London to pursue a Master's of International Relations at the London School of Economics. She is fascinated by the French language and has the ultimate dream of working for the United Nations. She is an avid, artsy, nomadic student of the world. Our next story comes to us from Gay Iman, whose son was born with his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. He survives, grows up to be a wonderful son, and dies unexpectedly. This is Gay's story of healing and grace. She calls her story, Breath. I'd like to take you back to 1981, well, 1980 to begin. In the fall, Ike had returned to Missoula after a brief time away. I came back to my good friends. I came back to my church, and I needed a refuge. I came back five months pregnant as a single mother of a 10-year-old daughter. In that time, I... uh, was embraced by my friends. We lived in a communal house, 13 adults and three children. That was pretty common back then. And that's where I began the journey that I wanna talk to you about. Skip forward to the last day of February in 1981. I got up with my friend Martha. She would be my future birth coach and we went down to Old Town to have breakfast. I walked in and everything was heavy, like I felt. And so in the end, I settled for granola and strawberry yogurt. It it was like eating ice cream, and I still can remember that. It, It made me appreciate the day. It was a beautiful day. It made me appreciate it so much, I went home and made five gallons of granola, and that's all I ate all day. So by three, I was feeling kind of twingy, and I thought, too much granola. (laughs) But in fact, I was in labor. So (laughs) it's hard, it's (laughs) it's hard to believe, but that's what it was. So by five and six, I'm getting ready. I am planning to have the baby at home with a midwife and Martha, the midwife's assistant, and I'm ready. Uh, My room's ready on the third floor, uh, and all all my friends come. My daughter's there, uh, the, the midwife, and we prepare for the night. By morning, I was in agony. I had been laboring all night, and it was a slow, hard process. Couldn't believe I was where I was, but I was. And so in that short time between morning and noon, I went through the process of pushing a watermelon um, made out of cement. And that, that was how my son came. So... He was born, uh, his head was born, and it was, it was only a head, <laughs> but it was as purple as a plum. The, the cord was completely wrapped around his neck twice, and he uh, had no apcar rate, he had no breath. 
So the midwife acted quickly. She clamped the cord. She cut it. And uh, the second um, complication was shoulder dystocia, which means he's, his shoulders are stuck. He doesn't have the room to rotate. And so she puts her fingers under his arm and corkscrews him out. And within minutes, he, she gave him her breath. And that was his beginning with um, a cord that stopped his breath. So he was an especially energetic young man. He was incredible. He had more energy than most boys. And he, at 13 months, I married my, a very best friend and we moved to Bozeman to continue our life. For 25 years, we did there. His name is Shannon, and he was at four or five, somewhere around there. He never slept as much as anyone else. So he got up, he made us breakfast, he climbed the, the cabinets, he got all the china down, he got the um, etched glasses my father gave me, and everything was laid out, and he made gourmet breakfasts. That was who he was. At seven, he sold rocks and rhubarb at the farmer's market and earned $90 by the, in two months and bought himself a BMX bike. He was an ambitious young boy. And when he was 20, we met up at a camp near Plains, Montana, and he was an exceptional climber, rock climber, and we went climbing with him. That was a time when I saw my son, Shannon, for, for who he really was. He was an exceptional person. It was my turn to climb. I get the harness, harness on. He's going to belay me. I get about halfway up. I think, oh, yeah, I can do this. This is OK. And then about 2 thirds up, I'm, my arms are shaking. My legs are quivering. I'm like, Shannon, let me down. That's enough. Let me down. He says, Mom, you can do this. You can do this. And I realized. <laughs> He wasn't really going to let me down, just because I, <laughs> I was suffering, you know? So he said, Mom, I just want you to remember that you're looking for a space as big as a dime. You're to put your toe in it and all your weight and climb up, pull yourself up. And that seemed like an impossible thing to me. But in my circumstance, I looked, and there it was. I put my toe in it. I found the hold, and I climbed up and got to the top. And as I came down, I realized how important that was for me and for Shannon. That was a very important time. After that, he got into some legal tr trouble, enlisted in the Army. Uh, after six years, two tours, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, he came home very broken. During that time, I had made uh, fortune cookies to battle the, the, the discouragement I felt with him being so far away. I sent them to Iraq. I sent them to Afghanistan. I sent them to friends. I sold them at Farmer's Market in honor of his pilgrimage years ahead bef before me. And he came home. He came home to Montana to his family and friends and tried to put his life and the pieces back together. In 2013, I got a call 
from his youngest brother that he had found him dead. My son, Shannon, practiced autoerotic asphyxiation. And when that cord that time cut off his breath, he had no one to give them theirs. And that was an immensely difficult time. And after six months later, I quit my job and I went home to the farm, trying in my own way. So I quit my job. I went to the farm that my husband and I own and I put my own pieces together. And in that way, I planted my potatoes in a sunburst. I planted all the rows in wavy lines like mountain streams. It was my art project to just maybe prove that I still had care and love and, and um, ambition in me. I was very proud of it. And in June, like five years ago, I could feel the rain coming, so I went out into the greenhouse to do some transplanting. I had all my seedlings out hardening off on the outside. It was a stormy day, little rain here and there, so I went in the greenhouse, and within minutes there was bullet-sized hail at a 45-degree angle annihilating everything. I stood at the door with my hands over my ears, and I was in awe. I had never been a part of something so dramatic and so powerfully destructive. I went in the house to eat some lunch, and I got out my journal after two pages. I had written his name, Shannon. And I said, this is not about him, but it was. I had carried this suitcase of shame and guilt, and everything along the, those same lines. If I had just loved him better, if I had just understood him more, if I had supported him in a different way. But you know, the garden proved to me that that's not true because I did do that with the garden and it was still destroyed. So I came to the conclusion that love is enough. Even though our circumstances slap up us up the side of the head and say, no, you're wrong. I know that love is enough. That in the moment that we love, that is enough. And that God's love is enough. <laughs> Thanks, Gay. Gay Iman is a mom of five children and three grandchildren. She and her husband farm in Helena, which has always been the dream of her hands and her heart. She was raised in the Bay Area near San Francisco and has lived in Montana, her father's home place, for over 40 years. Stories are the threads that weave her together in the fabric of grace and love. She is Nana to her grandchildren, like the dog in Peter Pan. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never heard it before. You can subscribe to Tell Us Something wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
We have two more stories in this episode. Before I get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store. Supporting Western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, the Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at goodfoodstore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. And coming in the fall of 2019, the Elm in Bozeman, Montana. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Learn more at logjampresents.com. A few news items before we get back to the stories. We are excited to announce our new storytelling workshops. Let Tell Us Something help you craft your own story one-on-one. We also offer group workshops with corporate and nonprofit pricing. To schedule a workshop and learn more, go to tellussomething.org slash workshops. We are currently taking story pitches for the fall quarter of Tell Us Something live event in Missoula. The theme is Leap of Faith. To pitch your Leap of Faith story, call 406 203 4683. Our next live storytelling event is in Missoula at the Wilma on September 24th. Get tickets for that at logjampresents.com. The theme, Leap of Faith. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. In our next story, Adam Washerback is ready for love at the third wedding of his, quote, divorce summer. A tragic accident while horsing around leaves him a quadriplegic, and he does the work required to make a full recovery. Adam calls his story, After the Bubble Bursts. Howdy, y'all. So uh, September 15th, 2018 was a big day for me. It was a day of celebration. I'd had a hard summer, um, and I had just signed a lease on a new place in Missoula as I was moving out of the house that my soon-to-be ex-wife and I inhabit together. I was moving on in my world and in my life. It was also a day that I was going to a wedding in Wisconsin, so I was back there. So even given my circumstance, I love weddings, celebration of loves like they do good for me. So I was really excited, uh, moving on in my world, at a wedding in Wisconsin, visiting some friends, feeling good, feeling frisky. And uh, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) And so, so it's 2 p.m. This island is in northern Wisconsin. I'm sorry, this wedding is in northern Wisconsin on an island. So we take a boat to it, 2 p.m. I'm playing on the beach. It's an hour before the ceremony, throwing frisbees, playing football. And the groom comes out and he says, I have an inflatable hamster ball. Does anyone want to get into it? Like, this is a no-brainer. Pick me, pick me. So, so what is this inflatable hamster ball? You awkwardly get inside of a deflated balloon. And as we're on an island, we fill it up with a uh, gas-powered leaf blower. And you, f- and you fill up this balloon, and you zip it shut. And then you're in a hamster ball with a finite amount of oxygen, but moving on. <laughs> and so it's like, all right, 
uh, what are my best stunts in a hamster ball? What can I do right now? So thing one, standard cartwheel. Thing two, step it up, right hand first cartwheel. All right, now what else do I have? What's in my bag of tricks? So I put my hands up on the hamster ball like this and I think, all right, I'm gonna do like a back handspring, but just a real slow one. So I just lean back. And I lean back and my hand slips and I fall and, uh, and I hit the ground. And it doesn't, it doesn't take long to talk to your body, right? And so my two hands are crossed in front of me and I tell my body to get up and it doesn't. And I tell my hands to move and they don't. And I scream at them move and they don't. And I'm in a hamster ball on an island in Northern Wisconsin, like with total loss of control of my body. I am a quadriplegic and I say the four most real things, pointed things of my life. I say to my buddies on shore, I can't move. Don't move me. This is real. Call 911. And, and it's one quick, are you effing serious from a friend? And EMS is initiated. And an hour and a half later, a rescue boat comes up. I get backboarded. I get boated to an ambulance. Ambulance takes me to a small hospital. They CAT scan me. Adam, you broke four, five, and six. Cervical four, five, and six. You're in a world of trouble right now. And, and we don't have anything to do. We can't do anything for you. So I get transferred to the big hospital and I get MRI'd. Adam, if you call it good news, you didn't sever your spinal cord, but as you can guess, you're pretty buggered up here. Yeah, I know. Um, and so, so what, what happens now? And they say, we're gonna put a cadaver bone in your neck and a bracket in your neck and we'll just see what comes in the weeks to come. Okay, I go into surgery and I wake up in an intensive care unit and I live in an intensive care unit, tubes coming out of me from all over. On like day four in that ICU, a nurse comes in and she says, Adam, where do you live? I guess I hadn't thought about this at this point. Well, where do I live? I live with my mom and dad. The nurse says, what's your mom and dad's house like? Well, it's awesome. It's on 24 acres in Wisconsin. No, dear Adam, your parents' house, is it a single level? Is it a split level? Is it a two-story? Oh, it's a split level. I guess I realized what she just asked. She comes back about five minutes later and says, here's two pamphlets. Lifts and houses are really expensive, and these are social programs that will help you to be able to afford to get a lift in your parents' house. As my heart just drops. What about when I walk up those stairs? Buddy, you're not feeding yourself right now. Okay. So in the time to come in that ICU, I learn to feed myself, and I miss a lot more than I make it, but I try, and I do. Uh, I learned to use a television remote, which is really important, because it kept me up on Blanche from the Golden Girls' crazy antics. <laughs> it was the first time in my life I had that much free time. I learned to stagger to the bathroom. I get helped, right? Um, you know, the nurses were special. Where do I live, right? I live with my mom and dad because I don't think anyone else wants to give me a catheter every four hours and a suppository every other day. This is my reality. Okay, we'll see what comes back, Adam. Yeah, we will. 
Well, some more time passes, and I spend in the ICU and inpatient rehab. And when I do get discharged, I kind of stagger up my parents' stairs all by myself. We don't have a lift. We didn't have to get a lift. That's pretty special. It's kind of looking like maybe someday I can live on my own again. That's successful. So I'm doing my rehab stuff in my parents' shed, which is walking around with a neck brace, just walking, looking like a spinal patient, trying to touch my nose without looking, throwing up a beach ball, trying to catch it, doing all the things you do if for the first time since you've been zero years old, you're trying to explain to your head how to talk to your body. And I see my dad's axe. So this is my tool. And, uh, and I pick up this axe, and it's been a month, and I lift it as hard as I can with every bit of might I have, and I can't get it higher than my hip level. So this is where, like, I'm so lucky and I'm so successful, and I know that, because I'll be able to live alone again. But I can't even lift up this tool that's defined me. Wow. Okay, so wearing a neck brace, sobbing, dragging an axe around my new roommate's mom and dad's shed, <laughs> and knowing that the reality is I'm so lucky. That's intense. Uh, I continue devoting my life to getting better, and uh, I give my two-and-a-half-month checkup with my, my team. I have a team, my team of neurosurgeons, right? And, I, and I'm feeling better. I'm still only limited to lifting 15 pounds. I'm not sure if I could anyways. And I ask them, I said, hey, I don't have a lot going on. Would it be okay if I spent winter in South America? And, and they give me this look like, you precious, you precious little guy. <laughs> you know? But like, for real, what's my life right now? Kind of married, kind of divorced, kind of homeless. I live with my mom and dad. I'm a spinal patient and I'm laid off. I would like a change of scenery. <laughs> so my, my only slightly disabled self finds themselves in South America in a month, um, a month from then. And I promised the doctor I'll take my TheraBands, I'll do all my exercises that I'm supposed to do. And they had given me a post-cervical fusion list of like, this is when you're allowed to do these things. And I remember at six weeks I could do full loads of laundry, and at six months I was allowed to go ice fishing. <laughs> right, the doctor's office was in northern Wisconsin. I feel like, given those two things, one could only surmise that at the four-and-a-half-month mark, which I find myself, uh, high-altitude mountaineering would fall there. <laughs> so, so there's a, a mountain that I was interested in climbing. My legs work real good. My mind is really determined. My hands are kind of funny. My arms are real funny but I want to try, so I put an axe back in my hand. This is an ice axe, right? And I go slow, and I go behind my guide, and I watch sunrise from 19,000 feet of elevation in South America, and I feel good, right? So, so after that, I call up work, because this was a new thing for me. I said, I think I can come back, right? Like, I'm still buggered up 
but I think I can come back. So we talk about that, and whatever you can do, Adam, you know, it's fine. So just one week ago today, I was in Alaska for work, and I was teaching a class on axes. And these people don't know me, but they had kind of heard something. They said, Adam, did you get hurt or something? Have we heard this? And I said, yeah, I broke three bones, but, um, but I'm doing okay. I said, right now I'm kind of funny and on a small amount of drugs, right? And that's, <laughs> that's all you need to know. And, and Greg, my dear friend uh, and co-instructor of the class, he announces to the class that he's known Adam for a lot of years. And for a lot of years, he thought Adam was kind of funny and on a small amount of drugs. <laughs> So, you know, me right now, how am I doing? I can live alone. I can feed myself. I don't take those things for granted. And I feel really, really lucky to be kind of funny and on a small amount of drugs. Thanks, Adam. Originally from Wisconsin, Adam Washerback moved to Missoula to work as a wilderness ranger. For the past 11 seasons, he has spent his summers working with horses, mules, saws, and axes to maintain the trails of the Selway Bitter Wilderness. Adam is a traditional skills educator and claims to have near-surgical precision with an axe. In this episode's final story, Raymond and Satigwe and his campmate hear what they think is a bear outside their tent while camping in grizzly country. They make their escape to the truck and have an unfortunate accident with hilarious results. Raymond calls his story Hot Sauce on the Backside. So I'm a guy that has a super weak stomach. Um, more of a gagger, puker kind of guy. So... <laughs> A couple weeks ago, as I climbed under our cabin, where we live at the end of a road, and I tied a rope around the four legs of a deer that decided she would end her life under our cabin. Not bloated, very soft, getting a little squishy. Seemed like a great thing to bring a bear to our house. So, as I get ready to pull the rope, our cabin's low, and I don't have enough leverage. So I tie the rope around my waist like I'm dallying on a calf so that I can get down on my hands and knees and have leverage to get this deer out from under the house. Not pretty. So I'm down, and the first one, I get the big push, and I'm like, go, go, go. And as soon as the deer turns over, the scenty part is getting strong and in a hurry, and I don't want to throw up on myself. I'm sorry, I just, there's only certain things you can really do. So now I'm crawling, and I'm getting close to the end of the cabin to where I'm going to get out to open air, and all of a sudden, it is bear season. Our bears are awake where we live. I'm not sure if I'm the bait or I'm the tether, but between the two of us, one of us is going to get eaten, and the other one can't do shit about it. And so somewhere inside of me, I'm thinking, God, I should, my wife always says, get the bear spray. Well, 
I should have bear spray. And at the same time, I have a little flashback, what I'm going to tell you about now, where I'm like, I don't think I want the bear spray. So I keep climbing as I think back seven years ago to a trip with a former girlfriend. And we decide, let's get out of town. We need a break. It's the end of September. Everything in your guys' neck of the woods here is on fire. It's so smoky that the whole trip to the Big Hole Valley, you can't roll down the windows because it just, your eyes get ready and, and they're just burning. So we're trying to use the air conditioning to control how much air is in the room as we travel. So anyway, we get there, we find a great spot to set up a tent down by the creek. We haven't seen anyone for two or three hours, probably because they were smart enough not to be there. Anyway, so we head to town, go get in the hot springs. Awesome. Just wonderful soak. Head back, park the car, the truck, which was a company truck, about 50 feet from our tent. So Cho, she, she's like, we got to get the cooler out of the back of the truck, and we should put it inside the truck. Well, the back seat's totally strewn with, with all of our, our bags and clothes and everything, so she throws it in the passenger seat. We shut the truck. Hmm. Bear-proof cooler, bear-proof truck. Seems like a good idea. We lock it up. The moon's full, so there's like a, even as smoky as it is, there's this huge, beautiful hue everywhere. We get in the tent after hot singer smokes, a soak, sorry. It doesn't take long, and you're asleep. And I'm not asleep long, and I wake to the sound of this <laughs> outside. Shit, it's a bear. Whew, bears. So I lay there in the tent, in the sleeping bag, trying not to breathe when all I want to do is, <sighs> and I can't. I'm doing the, <laughs> and, and, and at some point I'm like, mm, and not to be mean to Cho, but like waking her up is a lot like poking a grizzly bear saying, do you want to get up for lunch? So she's sleeping. I don't want to be a taco in a tent. And, but I just remember like my toes move at the end of my sleeping bag, which was like, shh, shh. but to me, it sounded like someone beating a, uh, a washboard with a stick, like, rrit, rrit, rrit. and I'm like, <gasps> and I sit, and I lay there, and I don't move, and I hear it again, <clears throat> and it's a little farther from the tent, and I reach over, and I poke her, and she's like, Ur. I'm like, hey, there's a bear outside the tent, and she, I could just remember with that little bit of moonlight, like, seeing big eyes, and she's like, are you sure? I'm like, Mm. And so we both lay there now. And finally we hear it again. And we can hear it snap a stick, but it's a little farther away. We kind of sit up. And all this happens in very hushed whispers and a lot of finger poking. Like, So we make the decision, fuck it, let's run to the truck. Because that's what they tell you anytime someone says, what happens when a bear's there? They never say, run to your truck. But we decide we should run to the truck. So we sit there, wait, wait, and just sitting there still, trying not to breathe, don't breathe, don't breathe. And we hear another, and then we hear splash, splash. So it's made it to the creek, which is mm, 10 feet, I don't know, it feels like five miles from where the tent is, but it was like 10 feet, so we're good. Like, it's moving away. And, and she's like, she looks and she's like, 
are you ready? And I'm like, uh, so I put on my shoes and grab the key fob, and she's like, tie your shoes. I'm like, come on. She's like, you'll trip. And I thank her for this because I would have. I would have tripped. And so I'm tying my shoes like this, shaking, you know, like a nut. I have the key, and she's got the bear spray. And so finally we hear one more splash and a little, and we're like, zit. And I go, well, I forget that when you hit the key fob to unlock the truck, it goes bleep, bleep, and the lights flash. So we're totally panicked, sprinting across this thing, and we hear splashing. And I know I heard it, or maybe I didn't, I don't know. But I'm sure whatever's chasing us is moving away because it's startled too by what we did. I run, jump in the truck, perfect, shut the door. I look over, Joe goes to jump in, cooler in her seat. <laughs> Shit. And then I see a big step and a big jump and a lot of butt, which, I mean, I can't say bad. It was a great ass. But it's coming at me, and it's coming at me fast, and I see the bear spray in her hand. Well, as she sits and hits, yep, bear spray goes off, shoots down her leg, covers the dashboard, and all the stuff on the front, which happens to be our swimsuits from the day, hits the, hits the windshield and comes back into my face. So, bear spray is a capillary exciter, so anytime it's there, you touch it, it makes your capillaries swell up. And for days and days, this will happen. So at this point, you know what? If this bear wants me, fine. I can't be in the car anymore. I gotta get out. So I just bail out, I'm laying in the parking lot, so is she at this point, snot and tears running down my face like I can't, I mean, this isn't pretty. And everything hurts. Um, and I'm at this point where I, I don't care. If the bear wants to eat me, I'm spiced, like I'm, I'm hot. So we get through and I get to the point where I can finally see again and try, I learned don't touch your face anymore, just let it sweat. And I come up and, and it is gross, like I can't imagine what I look like, but at the point where I look across and I can see under the truck, she didn't get eaten by a bear either, but I look and there's two young bull moose standing in the creek looking at us like, what the hell are you guys doing? So, at this point now, punishment, punishment, punishment for the next three days. And so all of you know that bear spray one, don't put it on to protect yourself. Don't put it around your tent. But more importantly, if it does get on you, you thought it hurt the first time, wait till you take a shower because it all finds its way somewhere else. And it reignites and makes life awesome for as long as you can stand there and you will cry again. Um, two weeks later, we think we've made it through this whole existence, and she jumps in a hot springs with her swimsuit and says, I think my ass is on fire, and I'm like, oh, it is. And, and she got the biggest reverse sunburn you people have ever seen. So at this point, now, I've got the deer. I'm back to the deer, remember the deer? I got the deer, and I'm dragging this thing out from under my cabin. I don't give a shit if there's a bear. I will do whatever it takes. He can eat me, he can eat the deer. But I do get it packed up, thrown in my truck, and disposed of properly. Thank you. And once again, I do have a weak stomach. <laughs> so, thank you. Thanks, Raymond. Raymond Ansatigui was born and raised in Montana. He is a reclamation scientist and spent a decade as a rodeo bullfighter. 
His wife is a world-renowned artist that patiently deals with his cooking attempts. He loves people and the bond of storytelling that holds us all together. Remember that our next live storytelling event is in Missoula at the Wilma on September 24th. Get tickets for that at logjampresents.com. The theme, Leap of Faith. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org Thanks to our sponsors, Missoula Federal Credit Union, Don't Just Bank, Belong, MissoulaFCU.org Missoula Bone and Joint, providing superior clinical orthopedic care to our patients for over 60 years, MissoulaBoneAndJoint.com Access Physical Therapy, who has an enthusiastic team dedicated to providing compassionate and comprehensive care to their clients. Learn more at accessmissoula.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, including the Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. You 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station, and ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlightened Lab Float Center. Enlightened Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at GeckoDesigns.com. Buildy Design. Montana stickers, mugs, and apparel with a twist. Etsy.com slash shop slash Design. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Remember that our next live storytelling event is in Missoula at the Wilma on September 24th. Get tickets for that at logjampresents.com. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers Mariah Kelly, Gay Iman, Adam Washerback, and Raymond Ansategui. Thanks for listening. Remember, your story matters. Learn more about Tell Us Something at tellussomething.org.